Dear Bridge Church congregation, thank you so much for all the wonderful donations for our kiddos. I'm truly humbled by your unwavering compassion each year. Merry Christmas, Danny Classicus. And she's the leader. And thank you, Mike and Angie, for leading our ministry. Uh, and way to go, church. Uh, your generosity was amazing. Okay, kids, now you have a chance. You can, if you don't want to hear my sermon, you can leave now. Well, I guess I know what they think. So it's pretty interesting. We have to put in the program that uh, because we're having so many kids, we're having problems. I think we're blessed. And I'm grateful to be back from a couple of weeks vacation, suffering in uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama. It was cold down there, but we made it. So um, I think I have preached over a hundred Christmas messages. It gets hard every year to try to think of a new message, um, probably around 25 Christmas Eves. And um, so I'm going to do uh, what I've called today the first Christmas of view from 30,000 feet. That may not sound very exciting, but it's the big picture view. And I uh, hope you'll um, engage with me today. On Thursday, November 27, 2003, with extraordinary secrecy, the President of the United States, George Bush, made a surprise visit to Iraq. Uh, on that day, 600 soldiers were gathered for Thanksgiving dinner, but before dinner, they were in a large room to hear a speech. And it was from uh, the U.S. Chief Administrator, Paul Bremer. Bremer told the troops that he would read a proclamation from the president. But just as he began to read, he paused to let the troops know that there was a standing tradition that you let the most senior official present read the proclamation of the president. He called out, is there anyone here who is more senior? The president himself stepped out from behind curtains at the back of the room and um, came, uh, came to the podium. The applause was overwhelming. People were, the troops were standing on chairs and on tables to see their president. Um, After the speech, uh, President Bush proceeded to serve the troops uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and he just hung around all afternoon uh, to spend some time with them. And it, it was in the mess hall in Baghdad. When uh, President Bush was asked uh, about his visit, why he made this, he said, I thought it was important to send the message that we care for them. Uh, the visit caused much rejoicing among the troops and stunned the nation. It was a great surprise to the president's parents who were waiting 
in the president's Texas home, expecting him for Thanksgiving dinner. In a similar manner, God has sent many people to speak on his behalf and to speak for him on many occasions. We call them prophets. God then made a surprise personal visit on the very first Christmas. It was unexpected by most, almost everyone. And he became Emmanuel, which means God with us. He too came because he cared. And we see that from heaven's perspective, overlooking the birth of Jesus at 30,000 feet. And I want to look at John chapter 3, verse 16. This is, think about this as the big picture. Think about this as the overview of Jesus coming to this earth, born of the Virgin Mary, living his life, dying on a cross, and returning to heaven. It was because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is good news. It is really good news. God sent Jesus because he loved us so much, the world. He's talking about humanity, all of humanity, all people, every person. And that means absolutely every person in this room. Uh, the traditional story, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, zeroes in on, on the particulars, the specifics of that first Christmas morning. Luke's account focuses on Mary, as you may know. In chapter 1, the angel appeared to Mary to announce to her what was to happen, which was an amazing thing because she was a virgin and she was going to have a child, and I don't think that happens. It would be a supernatural conception, and Mary needed a heads up that everything is going to be okay, and this is a, this is a God thing. And Luke chapter 2 tells the story of their journey to Bethlehem uh, to carry out the, the census of Caesar, and there Jesus experiences a humble birth in this very small town outside of Jerusalem. And then there's the Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 passage, that other passage that focuses from Joseph's perspective because he's the fiance and his fiance has become pregnant and he's got a problem because he knows he's not the father. That is a predicament. He's not sure what to do. Uh, you know, he likes Mary. Mary's been a trustworthy woman but, this, woman, but this doesn't make sense. And so God sends Gabriel again to speak to Joseph, to calm Joseph's heart, to get the facts straight. So Joseph will take Mary as his wife. And it is there that the child is called Emmanuel, God with us. He would be the savior of his people. So let's go to 30,000 feet and, and talk about the backstory of what happened on that first Christmas. Uh, throughout all of history, God had a plan. It actually begins in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve and, and their, the first failure. 
and God's plan, which is just alluded to in the curse, that there is a plan, good versus evil, and good is going to triumph. The next uh, passage, and we'll look at that, is Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Think about this. This is about 2,200 years before the birth of Christ, okay? Now, God is going to start weaving clues into history. We like things fast and rapid and right away, and God has a slow, careful plan and process. Genesis chapter 12, God picks one man, his name is Abram or Abraham, and God said to him, guess what, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless your socks off. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And it's that last phrase, all people on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And God is giving Abraham a promise. It's going to go all the way through Scripture that the world, all people, all nations, everywhere are going to be blessed by a descendant of Abraham. And Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 tells us very clearly that it is Jesus. He would be the one that God would send through Abraham that would bless the world. Next, we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now we're going to go from 2200 B.C. to the 10th century B.C. That's a long way for a clear passage like this. This is to David, the great king of Israel. This is Nathan the prophet speaking to David, speaking for God. When your days are over and you, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. And here's the key. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that separates this king. And yes, all the kings of David's descent are going to be important they need to be, to be on David's throne. They need to be from his lineage. But there is one that will stand out, that will be eternal, an eternal king above all. And it was promised to David, Jesus would be the son of David. Now we go forward to the 8th century BC, Isaiah 7, verse 14, well-known passage, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's just a clue. If we had heard that, we wouldn't have known what to do with this information, but it's a clue that's building the story of who this person is going to be. It's easy for us to look back with all of our information. It's not so easy if you were there. Okay, that's the 8th century B.C. Now we're going to go to Isaiah 9, verse 6, one of my favorites. And I think uh, Grant covered this passage. Um, it's one of my favorites. For to us, a child is born. To us, the son is given. It's easy to look back and look into that passage. I don't think we're reading into it. The child is born. This was a human child born the normal way. A birth, a physical birth, child born to us, to the nation Israel. 
To us, a son is given. And I think we have just stepped into another realm, the realm of God. It's the God who so loved the world that gave his son. And that is the son that is mentioned here, the son of God. To us, a son is given, and this is what makes him unique. The government will be on his shoulders. Well, when did that happen? And it hasn't happened yet. And he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. There was nobody born in Israel called those names until we begin to see Jesus as this person. And he, and if you, verse 7 talks about the, his throne and uh, it's going to be powerful, and it hasn't happened yet. This is one of those passages that looks even into the future to when Jesus will come again. Let's go on. Another passage that uh, Grant looked at, Micah 5 2. Let's just keep the story rolling. More clues are coming. So we go into about the late 7th century before Christ. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are dinky among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins, and this is the key right here at the end, whose origins are from of old, not from today, from of old, from ancient times. And those phrases, especially in Hebrew, identify eternal existence. They understood that there was this, this person born in Bethlehem was from eternity past. And those are God kind of qualifications, by the way. We don't have an eternity past. We always have a start in history. So those are some of the clues of the backstory to the birth of Jesus. Now I want to look at John's gospel, and we're going to focus on the prologue. The prologue is the introduction, and the prologue um, identifies themes, and that's exactly what John does. He identifies what the book is going to be about. I'm going to start uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And here we go. John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So John, he knows already about Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, and he knows about Mark's gospel, and John doesn't want to repeat all of that. He wants to start and let everybody know right off the bat who Jesus is so he can tell his story, to tell what he wants to tell. And so he just wants to identify Jesus from the beginning. And we see uh, in uh, John chapter 1 the concept of the Word. This is a kind of a cool concept. I have to admit that uh, I came across this way before I became a follower of Christ. So I became a follower of Christ when I was 25. When I was in college, I was dabbling in philosophy. I loved philosophy to ask questions and search for answers and know you're not going to find one, but you're going to keep looking for more sense. 
searching. That's what I was doing. I was searching for truth. I enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of cool, you know, and and so uh, very early, I came across ancient Greek philosophy. We studied the ancient Greek philosophers. One of the most important terms in Greek philosophy is the term the logos. And that's the Greek word for the word. In the beginning was the logos. That's what John said. Now, the, the Greek philosophers were searching. You know, they were doing it without God. They were trying to figure it out on their own. And they were searching for, how did, where did everything come from? Where did this universe come from? Who, you know, what's behind it? And so they came up with this term, and they called it the Logos. And it sort of meant the first cause. It wasn't personal. It was like, it was reason. It was uh, sort of logic, uh, all of it together. It was sort of God with a small g, but not a person. It was sort of the power behind creation, where everything came from, the one who made things right and wrong, the way things should be, and they called it the Logos. And uh, Socrates talked about it, Plato wrote about it, Aristotle wrote about it, and there was a Jewish philosopher, uh, Philo, during the life of Jesus, who lived during the life of Jesus, who referred to it over 1,300 times. And he used the Greek word logos. So John, the gospel writer, the young disciple, uh, he's not young now. He, when he writes, he's old. Probably even older than me. And uh, he writes and he says, in the beginning was the logos. John says, I know who it is. I know who everybody's searching for. I know what's behind the universe. I know where the answers lie to man's questions. John's a fisherman, and he has the smallest vocabulary in the New Testament, and he tells the whole world who the Logos is. When I became a follower of Christ, this was exciting stuff to me. This made so much sense. Okay, here we go. The concept of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... Uh, with God, and the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. So we go what? A time frame, beginning, in the beginning. And um, we know that the word is a person. Look at verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. He. John, John believes the word is a person, and he's a he. And not only that... According to John, the word was God. And so John is being very explicit to identify the Logos as God. He's behind everything. Our God is behind everything. So, uh, in the concept of the word, the word is a person, the word is God, and the word was with God. Think of face to faith. The Word was in relationship with God in the beginning. There was, there was God and there was God in the beginning. And we're going to learn it's God the Father and God the Son. We also know that God the Holy Spirit was there in the beginning. When you hear in the beginning, what does that remind you of? The very first verse I learned in the Bible when I was a small child was Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
So uh, verse 3, the prerogative of the word. I don't use the word prerogative very much. It means the exclusive right or uh, privilege by virtue of the rank or the position of the person. Because he is God, he had a privilege. Verse 3, John 1, 3. Through him all things were made. Do we have John 1, 3? Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so John is saying Jesus is the creator. Jesus, the word, created all things. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, Jesus was there. He was the agent of creation. He's the one who called the shots. It wasn't the Father. It was the Son. He is the creator, God. We give God the Father credit, too. Um, he is responsible for all creation, Genesis 1.1. And let's jump to Genesis 1.26 and 27. So then God said, you, you know this passage, then God said, let us make man in our image. And that's really through, um, you know, the ancient Israelites, um, this plurality in the Godhead, Elohim was a plural and they had to keep it. And they knew that God was one and how can you have a plurality and the unity in the Godhead, it was kind of a mystery. They didn't really talk about it. But there's, when it came to verse 26 and 27, they absolutely kept the correct grammar, the plurality. doesn't make sense to us for English. Let us make man in our image. If God is speaking, God said, but because God is plural... Let us make man in our image. There is a communication going on in the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they're talking about a plan to create humanity. It's exactly what they do, and they create men and women in the image of God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in the first century after the death of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, in the first century, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and there it is, and through him and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus is the one who made the universe. So finally, John will give us the identity of the word. He clarifies this, um, and I'm gonna John. I'm gonna jump to John 1:14. The word, the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen the glory of the one and only Son, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John identifies him clearly. And he's going to go on, and if you read the context, he's going to even mention the Son of God. The Word became flesh. This is the birth of Jesus. God, who existed from eternity past, became flesh. He was born as an infant. 
came down through the history. God had a plan. And then he put it into motion at the birth of Jesus. It was always a plan of redemption, even with the infant. There would be a plan for Jesus to live out his life, to do the Father's will, and go to the cross and pay for your sin penalty and mine. John says, we've seen his glory. We've seen, he's talking about the apostles, he's talking about the other disciples. We have seen Jesus at work. We have seen his miracle. We have seen him display his power. We have heard him preach the word of God. We were there when he was crucified. We didn't expect it. We were there when he was resurrected. We didn't expect it, and we saw the power of God and the glory of Jesus. And John also probably thinks back to the transfiguration when Jesus revealed himself to Peter, James, and John just uh, for a short glimpse of his glory. But John is saying, we were eyewitnesses. I have seen these things. Okay, we're going to go to verses 4 and 5. The, uh, John continues with this big picture at 30,000 feet. So the identity of the ultimate source of life in verses 4 and 5. And we just begin simply, Jesus is the source of life. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. It's really simple. It is a profound theological statement. Um, He is the creator of life. He is the giver of life. And um, he has life. And he can take life. He's the source of life. But it goes deeper than that. It's not just physical life because God is a spirit. And God has a spiritual dimension. And God brings a spiritual life to who he is. In him was life. And that life was the light of all men. John chapter 10, verse 10, uh, Jesus said, I have come that they meaning his followers, may have life and have it to the full. Not just a physical life, but an added spiritual dimension that Jesus would bring and that Jesus would offer and enable them to go on a new level, on another plane of life that has the opportunity to be full of joy, that doesn't depend on the circumstances around us, but depends on what God gives to us. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus is the light of humanity. Again, verse 4, in him was the life, that, and the life was the light of all mankind. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John alludes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to this war of good versus evil. Jesus comes into the world as the light, representing truth, representing God, and he faces some darkness. And this idea of darkness in John refers to the dark side, refers to 
um, separation from God, without relationship with God, refers to evil. It refers ultimately to total separation from God and hell. It refers to those who operate according to those principles, Satan and his demons. And there is a war going on. And evil could not overcome Jesus, nor will evil ever overcome Jesus and his work. John chapter 8, verse 12. One of my favorite passages, when Jesus spoke, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the light of the world. He, he is God, the present God in person, shining brightly, representing the true and living God. And he invites us to follow him, to be in relationship with him. And as we do, then we experience life. And, we, and there's a promise here. If you stay on the track of walking in light, you're not going to walk into darkness. Unless you choose to. But we'll have the light of life. I'm going to skip over verses 6 through 9. That should encourage you. John the Baptist is not about Christmas. That's what verses 6 through 9 are. He's important, and he's, he is a light, but he's not the light. In verses 10 through 13, Jesus is our way to connect with God. Jesus is our way to connect with God. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. John 1, 10 and 11. So John says about Jesus, He was in the world... Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So think about that. You know, just reflect on that a minute. Jesus came to this earth. He walked around. He was a humble guy. He made it all. He could have executed anybody on the spot. But he came into this world, and, and the world didn't know him. The world didn't recognize him. The world didn't get it, meaning humanity in general. It's just like it is today. You can talk about Jesus and people just, uh, don't bother me. Not important. It's just a nice story. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. And this is really, really sad. He came to that which was his own, meaning his own people, meaning the nation Israel, meaning all of those promises. They, they had those clues. He's coming. This is how it's going to happen. This is what you can expect. This is where it's going to be. And then he has this miraculous birth, and God sends a star to draw people. He, he sends a star to draw the pagans to come to see Jesus. To tell, begin to tell the world. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, did not welcome, welcome him, did not want him. In fact, it was such a big deal, they decided to crucify Jesus. That's what John tells us. But then we come to verses 12 and 13. Yet, John says, to all who did receive him, who welcomed him, who embraced him, who he was, what he, what he stood for, who embraced his life, 
to all who, who receive him, to those who believed in his name. So believing in his name is believing in the person. Uh, the name represents the person. The name is about his reputation, who he is, what he stands for, what he's accomplished. Jesus. To those who believed in his name, just like in Acts 16.31, when Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believing in the person of Jesus. He gave the right to become children of God. He granted a privilege to be connected with God in the spiritual realm by virtue of birth, a birthright, a spiritual birthright. So my story is, um, let me just go on and touch verse 13, and then I'll mention my story. So, uh, he, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, verse 13, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Children not born of a natural descent. I was born of natural descent. I bet you were too. And um, I was uh, born uh, by a human decision and the will of a human father out of wedlock. And they didn't need me, didn't fit, and I was adopted, which is really good news. But I grew up in this uh, position, this style, this in my natural state without a relationship with God, even though I had some religion and I did some church stuff. In fact, I got confirmed. But, but I never had a relationship with Christ, never really understood what it meant that Jesus Christ died for me, that he paid the penalty for all my sins, and God invited me to trust Jesus. And I could be forgiven. That's simple. I could be given eternal life. It was that simple. And that's what he's talking about here, about becoming a children of God, being born with a nature that comes from God, a nature that I didn't have before I was 25 years old. But when I placed my faith in Christ... I was given a new nature, a new capacity to serve God and please God in a place where God's spirit could reside and begin to help me to follow Jesus. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God, receiving a nature, a nature that comes from God. Later, Later, Jesus will tell Nicodemus that you must be born again. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about you were born the first time and natural. Now you need a spiritual birth. How do you do that? Well, this is what he told Nicodemus. Well, let me look at John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way that we get connected with God. Most of you know that. Some of you maybe aren't sure about it. What did he tell Nicodemus how to be born again? John 3, 16. Next passage. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son. This is to Nicodemus. This, these are the words of Jesus. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever places their faith, whoever trusts Jesus, what Jesus did. Jesus is alive. That's the amazing thing. I didn't get this. I didn't really understand it. Yes, I heard about the resurrection. And, okay, okay, I believe that. That's kind of how I approached it as a kid. But I never really thought about it. No, Jesus is in heaven right now. He's resurrected and he's alive. He's not dead. And he wants people to respond to the good news, to the offer that we can have a life, eternal life, spiritual dimensions, something new, something we never had before if we place our faith in Christ. And just as we close this morning, I just want to give a, an opportunity for anybody here who has never placed their faith in Christ, who would like to today? I'd like to just give that opportunity as we close our, our service this morning. Many of you have made that decision. You can just thank God for what he's done for you. We know about good news. For some people, it doesn't seem like good news. Some of you here aren't even sure God loves you. And maybe you are already a follower of Christ, but I can assure you, absolutely, God loves you. And it's not dependent on your performance, because you don't deserve it anyway. No matter how good you are, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve God's love. It's a gift. Our job is to receive it. If you have never placed your faith in Christ, um, I'd like to suggest a way to express your faith, and that's by way of a prayer. And the prayers can be real simple. Um, just to remind you, the, the main truths of the Bible. Um, the Bible says that all of us are sinners, that we're separated from God. And that just means if you know that you've classified because you've failed, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. There are consequences for our behavior, for our sin when we fail. And ultimately, if we do nothing, death. Separation from God, eternal separation from God, and there's going to be judgment. It's an eternal judgment, and Jesus called it hell. Not my words, his words. The good news is, God so loved the world that he sent his son and Jesus would die on the cross and he would pay the penalty for our sins. And it's all paid for. The good news is sin penalty is paid for. And now our responsibility is just to respond by faith, just to trust Jesus, to believe the message. So I'm going to uh, give us an opportunity by expressing a prayer. And it's real simple. It's going to be something like, dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins and I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sin. And I invite Jesus to come into my life to help me to be the person he wants me to be. It's that, it can be that simple if you're serious with God and it's something you've never done before. Let's all bow our heads as we close our service this morning. And if that uh, prayer made sense to you, if, if you would like to experience forgiveness of your sin... If you would like to begin a relationship with God today with Jesus, I just invite you to pray with me silently from your heart, just you and God. And here's the prayer. Dear God, I truly admit that I'm a sinner. 
I thank you that Jesus died for me. He died in my place, took my sin. And I trust him right now to pay for my sin penalty. And I want Jesus to come into my life and to help me to be the person that he wants me to be because I want to learn to follow him. And God, I just thank you for uh, all of us. I thank you for every person in the room and uh, for uh, the privilege we have to know you and to walk with you and to celebrate Christmas this year. May we just be reminded of how great the gift we've received is. May we um, just learn to respond back to you with the way we live in a way that's pleasing to you and a lifestyle of faith. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.